For most of you listening to this, you do not own your stocks and bonds. I know this is going to come as a shock, but we're going to take a deep dive in this special series. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity, and this has been the most incredible ride I've gone on since I interviewed David Rogers Webb of The Great Taking. Perhaps you've heard of it. But this is a story of intrigue, but it's one you have to know about. And I get that not everybody likes to know about these things. Some people, they don't want to know. Um, it's too complicated. But this is something where you absolutely have to know about what the structure of the system is if you want to be safe or figure out a strategy or do anything you can to figure out how to protect your assets this is a really shocking story, and so we're going to talk about this today, which is this book by David Rogers Webb. That's him right there. He is a securities expert, uh, worked in the finance business for a long time, and felt compelled to tell the story of the great taking. And I, this is going to take quite a while to go through, and it's going to take me a number of episodes to get through it. This is going to be like the crash course. I'm going to go in deep. I'm going to figure this stuff out. I'm going to explain it in a way you can understand it. And I'm going to do the heavy lifting because hey, that's what I do at Peak Prosperity. Save you time. Not afraid to burn the brain cells to figure out what's going on. Now, I've been mystified for a long time. This movie came out from the WEF in 2016, and it had eight basic things. Number one was you'll own nothing and be happy. Okay. I don't know how they'll guarantee part two of that, but that part one even, like how do, how, how will I own nothing? And by the way, if they say in part number two of this is, by the way, you'll just rent everything. From who, right? Somebody has to own something for somebody else to rent it. So what they're saying is you, the little citizen, you will own nothing. Now, how, how would you go about accomplishing that? How would you assure that people will own nothing? Well, in fact, by the time this little vignette of a movie had been put together in 2016, it had already been put in place, the legal structures for taking everything that you own. And that's why it's called the great taking. So now we know how this is going to happen legally. And there's a big difference in my world between what's right and what's legal or what's correct and what's lawful. I'm going to tell you about what, how the legal system has been set up. And this is quite a dive. Listen, I may have some of this stuff wrong. I reserve the right to uh, change anything and to resolve things further as I go forward. This is a very complicated area. I am not a lawyer. This isn't legal advice. This isn't financial advice. I'm just going to take a tour with you as we step through and make sense of this thing that we have to talk about, which is encoded in the legal structure here in the United States, but most other places. This applies to Canada, Australia, and Europe as well. Now, what is this thing? Well, it starts here. Um, the Great Taking, Chapter 2, is something called dematerialization. What is that? Well, it turns out that there are no actual property rights now to securities that are held in what is called book entry form in any jurisdiction that matters globally. Lot contained in there. This is a direct quote from the book itself from David Rogers Webb. There are no property rights to securities. Already, we're going to have to we're going to spend some time in this series. I'm going to make sure we are having common understandings. And the way we do that is we make sure that we understand what these words mean. Some of these words are not what you think they are. 
because they have legal definitions, and that's what we're going to be unpacking. We care about the legal definition. Property rights needs to be understood, and securities. What, what are securities? All worthy of understanding. Chapter three is about something called a security entitlement. That's what you actually have if you have a 401k or you have stocks or you have bonds held in a portfolio and it's at any one of the big brokerage houses. You actually, 99% sure, you probably have what's called a security entitlement. And this is an odd thing um, because as he wrote in the book again, direct quote, you are led to believe that you own something, but someone else secretly controls it is collateral. This is a really big concept. So we're going to unpack that as well. He talks about this thing called harmonization, which is that there are no borders. Harmonization means that the rules have all been harmonized across different districts because one of the things about a great taking when, when you're really looking to um, secure control of the whole system, you can't allow any escape hatches. You really can't allow a place for people to sneak out of the way. That doesn't work, right? So no borders, no escape hatches, no local jurisdiction. So the local judges can't rule on this stuff. All of this stuff has been pulled out, dematerialized, wrapped up in this thing called the security entitlement, and then harmonized across all these different districts. Okay. And then, well, the collateral has to be managed. How does that happen? Ooh, this is uh, super complicated. The collateral holders, you know, they, they really, they just must. We just, the big banks and, you know, hedge funds, all that, they, they just have to be able to move their legal control of these collateralized assets, which in many cases might be your stocks and your bonds. Oops, not actually yours. That's the point. They have to be able to move these across borders instantaneously, or it doesn't work. They just don't have as much fun in life. Um, and as well, they, there's this concept of something called safe harbor. And safe harbor for who? And from what? Well, turns out it's a nice sounding name, but it's safe harbor for secured creditors in this story. And that's not the entitlement holders. Now, we're not going to get through all of this today. Like I said, this is a multi-part series. So this is just first part of it. Now, if you like this kind of um, detail and you want to know more about this and you want to know exactly what you can do about this, you're going to have to come by peakprosperity.com because that's where we talk about these things in the depth I'm pretty sure you want to know about. Now, this is a fascinating story that you have to know this. We have to know this. First thing, though, we're going to start with some words and phrases. We're going to define all of these in this series. First, collateral. They use that word already, collateral. What's collateral? Do you know? We'll make sure we're sharing a common understanding of that. Or entitlement. What's an entitlement? What does that word actually mean? Because I know there's a social security. They say that's an entitlement. It's not that. This is a separate word We're gonna, in the legal sense that we're going to have to understand. Securities. What are securities? Let's make sure we're clear on that. Property rights versus privileges. We're going to get to that one actually today as well as collateral. And then derivatives. This is going to be a whole separate side quest in this bigger story because a lot of people think they know about derivatives. Derivatives. They've heard about them. They're worried about them. They've heard there's a quadrillion, maybe two quadrillion. Who knows? But what are they? We're going to make sure we understand that because when we put this whole package together, then we can finally begin to answer some questions. Now, as framing for this, I've always had this question, always, which is who's going to eat the losses? What we're looking at here is a chart that has two things on it at the same time. One is the total indebtedness of the United States. And by the way, this is all debt, right? State debt, federal debt, local, municipal, all of it, federal, corporate, all of it. That's just debt, not unfunded liabilities, not underfunded liabilities. This isn't doesn't include how much the Social Security 
trust fund, which isn't a trust fund, is actually shortchanged, or how underfunded Medicare Part D is, any of that. It doesn't include that. Just debt. By the way, old chart, because it's close to $100 trillion today. It's closer to $100 trillion. I must have pulled this a couple couple months ago. Um, and so debt is on the top. It's marked in blue and says debt. And then below is GDP. And that's the gross domestic product. Now, there should always be a relationship, a steady relationship between the amount of debt and the amount of income you have in any particular situation. It's a longer, more complicated story. I really unpack it in the crash course on the chapter on debt. You have to know that some debt is self-liquidating, some is non-self-liquidating. Not important for this story. What is important is to note these two lines, debt and, in, and income, GDP, are growing apart from each other. And debt is growing much, much faster than GDP. By the way, that little wiggle right there, that's the great financial crisis for six quarters. First time ever in the data series for the United States, going back to the 50s, for the first time, credit actually went backwards for six quarters, and it almost destroyed the entire system. So this is a very important, powerful thing we're discussing today, which is actually the solvency and the continued operation of our entire system of credit and money, all of which is required to keep our entire complicated global just-in-time system of goods production and services production and delivery functioning. If this breaks down, if your money system breaks down, all of your supply chains break down, right? So this is a very important concept. This all has to keep working. What I'm worried about is, well, first off, we know that this is a broken model. We know that this is not going to last. We know Jerome Powell's even been on TV on CBS's uh, 60 Minutes just recently saying this is unsustainable. It's obviously unsustainable. Anybody can look at this and go, you can't do that forever. So we all know this. The key is to make sure that you can believe your own lying eyes, that you can believe what you're hearing for yourself, that you know in your heart, right from wrong, true from false. I will present all the data to you. You may come to very different conclusions about it. Totally fine. Don't care. What I do care about is that we have a full context-rich conversation about things that other people are going to try and convince you you really shouldn't be talking about or worrying your pretty little head about, or maybe it's just too complicated for you as commenters to understand. Oh, you're not going to do your own research, are you? <laughs> yes, we are. Okay. And we're going to do it together. So who's going to eat the losses? Well, now I know how to answer that question because I can show you the legal code that's already written and has already had established precedent to show that this has actually happened. I mean, if we just carried this on for a little further, it looks like this, this becomes even more obviously like, yeah, this just isn't going to work out, right? We just know that. But what happens when your credit system goes, you know, exponential like that, your system of debt and your GDP is just, you know, trundling along? What happens? Well, it breaks at some point. What happens when it breaks? Well, that kind of depends on the complexity and the internested complexities of all these things. So this is something that everybody should be very concerned about. And we should be talking about this as a nation, as a globe, because this applies to many other countries, actually applies to the whole system. Listen, if one corner of the global financial system goes down, I don't know that there's any safe places to be. The whole thing gets kind of ragged and messy pretty quickly. So we want this to stick together and we want it not to have no good answer. And we don't want to operate it until it trundles off and smashes into a brick wall at 90 miles an hour. Now, here's the landscape we're going to cover in this series. First, 
we're going to have to talk about the U.S. Code, which is the laws of the United States. In particular, we're going to talk about Title 11, Bankruptcy 11A, the bankruptcy rules, and Title 12, which is banks and banking. Not all of it, because trust me, that <laughs> that's like a year of study all on its own, but enough so that we can understand what the pieces are so that we can validate or dismiss the claims that David Rogers Webb has made in the books. In fact, I can validate most of them, and I have some wrinkles and some other things I get to add to that because I think I found some other things. We'll see. What is the U.S. Code? When Congress passes a 2,700-page omnibus spending bill and then tucks some, some laws in there, too, just for fun, those laws get pulled out by government bureaucrats and recategorized or classified into their appropriate groupings because they might have a spending bill where they've, they've changed something about domestic security or they've impinged on agriculture and the rules around it or they've done something around bankruptcy law and that gets tucked in and so that gets pulled out and then it gets tucked in thankfully into one consolidated harmonized spot and by the way there's i don't know 50 60 titles or something we're just going to be talking about 11 11a and 12 so this is u.s federal law and we're going to be pushing and looking at that we also have two parts of what's called the uniform commercial code which are a, a, a set of guidelines that are put together at the federal level, but it's up to each state to ratify these. And for the most part, they do. Rubber stamp, this is Unifor Uniform Commercial Code, which talks about how states can't, you know, it, it would be better. This is a harmonization project, which is around the idea that it makes sense that if you are going to conduct business operations in North Dakota, that there shouldn't be an entirely different set of rules in Pennsylvania or Florida. So the Uniform Commercial Code is a set of operating instructions for and rules for what the laws are. And, and the laws are, though, that they get ratified at the state level. So we're going to be talking about Article 8, which talks about investment securities. That's a 1994 act, right, came in. And then Article 9, secured transactions, really got updated there in 2010. So we can see, you know, when and where these uniform commercial codes came in. Just that. So bankruptcy 11, 11A, and 12 on the title side. Um, and then on the article side, which is the UCC, we're going to be talking about eight and nine, and we'll be talking about case precedents that show you that the rules have been written, they've been ratified, and they now have case precedents. So if somebody says, oh, this is crazy talk, Chris, you know, this will never happen. I'm going to say, well, the laws got written and they've already been applied and we already have case precedent. So it's already happened. The question is, do you believe it will happen even more or not as we go forward? So this is where we're going. So I'm going to start with the punchline first. So you know what this series is going to be all about. Here's the punchline. First, you are not the owner of your stocks and bonds, except in certain very asterisks, except in certain cases. So we're going to be talking about that. And we're going to talk about ways in which, especially back at Peak Prosperity, solutions and things people might do. This gets much more complicated. None of this, again, is financial advice. So I'm not putting that part out here in public because you need to talk to your financial advisor about this. You might have to talk to lawyers. It gets complicated quick. But this part I can tell you about because this is just part of the landscape. You are not the owner of your stocks and bonds. Second, um, let's see. Uh, you are a subordinated claimant. Isn't that an exciting term? Uh, you instead of whole owning stocks and bonds, you have something that's called a security entitlement. We'll be talking about what that means because those are two words. We have to define security and entitlement and then together as a phrase. So we'll be talking about that as well. And 
Um, well, above your claims, if you're subordinated, who's higher than you? These would be entities and persons uh, known as secured creditors. If this is starting to sound familiar, it's because you're probably familiar with the bail-in codes in banking. And if you're thinking, wow, this is starting, wait, they did this over here on portfolios too? The answer is, yep. And we'll be talking about that. Different different laws, but, but same concept. Um, and who are these secured creditors? Well, surprise, these mostly consist of big banks and gigantic financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Surprise. Uh, and their senior claims are mainly, uh-oh, derivative contracts. Remember that we're going to talk about derivatives? This is why. Okay. Um, and then uh, these, uh, these are now too convoluted to fully grasp. I mean, what, uh, a derivative contract, very briefly, is a contract. It's a sheaf of paper. It's a bunch of words. It says, I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. And we agree. And it's a contract. So it falls under contract law. But my contract might relate to your contract, which relates to somebody else's contract, which relates to another contract. And it's a big old uh, hairball. One to two quadrillion dollar sized hairball. Uh, two con- Nobody understands how the whole thing works anymore. Finally, um, these derivative contracts are now far larger in size than the value of everything in the world. That's one way we could look at it. The second way we might look at it, and we'll get into this more in more depth in the derivatives cul-de-sac we're going to take uh, at a future point because um, uh, these derivative contracts have, have tried, <laughs> people have tried to fool themselves. Oh, look, uh, because I've hedged this, I have a swap agreement. I have a this, I have a that. These are all derivative terms. I've hedged. My risk has been taken away. It hasn't taken the risk away. It's just spread out more risk more thinly across a lot of places so that when it does come back into one spot again we will find out all the risk in the world can't put humpty dumpty back together again it's going to be really miserable if it goes down the way i think it might so introduction this is the introduction to the book david rogers webb writing this wrote quote what is this book about it's about the taking of collateral all of it the end game of this globally synchronous debt accumulation super cycle. Bingo. I told, I showed you the debt accumulation just in the United States. That's true across the rest of the world as well. Carrying on, quote, this is being executed by long planned intelligent design, the audacity and scope of which is difficult for the mind to encompass. Included are all financial assets, all money on deposit at banks, all stocks and bonds, and hence all underlying property of all public corporations, including all inventories, plant and equipment, land, mineral deposits, inventions, and intellectual property. Privately owned personal and real property financed with any amount of debt will be similarly taken, as will the assets of privately owned businesses which have been financed with debt. If even partially successful, this will be the greatest conquest and subjugation in world history. End quote. You know... I wrote a a piece a while back called One Step Removed, and it really shows that humans were not that complicated. You know, if if something's just a little complicated, we kind of throw up our hands on on average and on balance. Most people say, I don't get it. It's too much. So the point of what we're about to embark on here is we're going to be uncovering a whole lot of complexity that is built that way specifically so that we get rebuffed and we bounce off of it and we don't look at it too closely. The complexity is a feature, not a bug, right? 
And this overly complicated system, when we strip away all the gobbledygook, is meant to separate us from our assets. They don't belong to us. They belong to somebody else. Now, who would do something like that, right? Well, that's what we're going to unravel. So here, let's begin with our terms. What is this book about? It's about the taking of collateral, all of it. What's collateral? Okay, let's share this. Uh, if you see that little icon in the upper left corner there, that, that's uh, definition time. So collateral is something, anything really, pledged as security for repayment of a loan to be forfeited in the event of a default. There it is. Collateral is something of value that's pledged as security against a loan. So collateral is used to get money, right? Very typically. So I'm going to use this as collateral to get money or something very money. Like I might, I might post my stocks as collateral and receive bonds as payment and return. But it's just, it's really the, the exchange of something of financial value for something else of financial value, usually cash, good old money. Now, this could be physical collateral in the case of a business. A business might need a business loan. And so they would post as collateral to the bank or to the lending institution, cash and cash equivalents, accounts receivable, inventory, or property, plant, and equipment. If you take on debt and you've posted collateral, that means it's a secured loan. So this is important because a secured loan has pledged collateral. And so it results in lower interest rates. That's great. And it's more security for the person or entity lending the money back. Because, hey, if you default, now they've got something of value, hopefully equal or higher value, that they can then use to offset their losses. An unsecured loan, however, has no collateral, gives you higher interest rates, more risk of default, things like that. So you've heard this before. I mentioned, you know, people misunderstand cash deposit and banking. And um, this is in Forbes. They say and ignore Bitcoin. So this is from June of 2022. This is in Forbes. Remember, your job is to believe people the first time, right? Maya Angelou says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. This is the hardest part about this is it's so, it's so you can't believe it works like this, that maybe your mind is repelled. Maybe you have some part of your mind that's like, no, that can't be, that can't, that can't be how it is, but it is. Um, John Kenneth Galbraith, the, the famous uh, economist said, the process by which banking makes money is so simple that the mind is repelled. You can't believe that banks just print money out of thin air. Like that when you go borrow 500000 for a mortgage from a bank, you must think they had that money somewhere. They don't. They made it on the spot by giving you the debt and the money came at the same time in the creation of that debt. That's banking. That's also in the crash course. You need to know how that works too, if you don't know. But look at this. A cash deposit in a bank, they say here, is virtually an unsecured loan to the bank. Not virtually, it is, um, with no assurance that your money is safe and easily accessible. To make it worse, the bank determines the conditions and the terms for that loan. When you deposit money in a bank, you surrender legal title to the cash, important concept, and it becomes the bank's asset. As a result, you've become an unsecured creditor to the bank. That is, the bank doesn't have to give you any security protection in case it result it defaults. You're an unsecured creditor. Did you know that? Your money gets deposited at bank and that makes you an unsecured creditor if the bank goes under. Whoops, you better hope the FDIC insurance actually sits there, but you are an unsecured creditor. You're cash. Crazy concept, right? You put money in the bank and pray, right? Um, that the whole thing stays together. 
Now, here's an interesting part. You need to know about this because we're going to talk about something called a pro rata distribution, fancy language, which basically says you get you get the leftovers if you're an unsecured creditor. And it works like this. Here, let me get my drawn tool out real quick. Um, uh, yeah, I'll use a I'll use a highlighter. So how much will you get back if you're an unsecured creditor and the person or entity that you are crediting on security goes under? Well, they have total assets, whatever's left over when they go bankrupt, minus whatever secured claims they have, okay, minus any priority unsecured claims, okay? And so that's total assets minus some things, usually also receiver fees, other stuff. So whatever they had left, you have to subtract them some things first. So that's the number on the top and the number underneath, right, is, well, what's the total of the unsecured claims? So let's say total assets were a million dollars. But those other parts added up to 500,000. Uh, there's only 500,000 up top. But the total of the unsecured claims was a million. Well, it's 500,000 over a million. That's 0. 0.5. 0. 0.5 is you'll get 50 cents on the dollar back on your unsecured claim. And that's called a pro rata distribution. Pro rata in proportion. Um, we just, we'll distribute whatever's left on a percentage basis based on your percentage of unsecured claims against the totality of the unsecured claims. So that's how that works, right? Now, getting to the question, David made some, some, some really wild claims up there. He's like, okay, if you, if you own stocks, you don't really own them. So now, and he has this link in his book, and there's what I like about his book. It's all referenced. You can chase the links down to your heart's content. I did, and I went many other places beside to begin to understand this story. So let's go straight to the horse's mouth here. This is from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Joyce Hansen here, who, was, who at that time was Deputy General Counsel, Senior VP, and March 6th of 2006, is writing back to a Mr. Martin Thomas, who had a bunch of questions from the EU Commission. They're like, hey, this is part of the harmonization process. They're like, we have some questions if we were going to follow your rules. So, you know, we have we have a few questions. And the questions fundamentally get to this answering this question, do I own my stocks and bonds or not? This should be a simple, simple question to answer. Hey, do I own my car or am I leasing my car? Can you explain the difference? Oh, absolutely. Easy. Do I own this television set or not? Easy to answer. Do I own these stocks or not? Not so easy to answer. On purpose. So let's go there. First thing we have to understand, though, is we're going to go back into definitions. We got to understand the difference between rights and privileges. So property rights are really important. In fact, they're foundational. In fact, I would submit to you that there are only a few legs on the stool of prosperity for any country, and property rights are one of those legs. No property rights, and that includes intellectual property rights, physical property rights, um, intangible. I mean, there's all kinds of property rights, but let's talk about this first though. When we say property rights, it's two words. What's a right? Well, rights are considered inherent, universal, and protected by law. Privileges are granted, conditional, and subject to decisions of those with authority. So when we start asking the question, do I have a property right when it comes to my stocks and bonds? Well, Let's, let's, let's go deeper. Let's look at this real quick. So rights, universal and inherent, right? They're considered inherent to individuals by virtue of their humanity. So the right to life, right? 
Um, they are often seen as universal. They apply to all individuals equally. You know, no pigs are, are more equal than others in this story. Legal protections, rights are typically recognized and protected by law. So, you know, the right to free speech, the right to bear arms, the right to whatever, right? So constitutional documents, statutes, international agreements may establish and safeguard fundamental rights. They're inviolable. Rights are viewed as uh, inviolable and not contingent upon the discretion of others. This is where we went wrong in a lot of the COVID stuff. They said, oh, your right to religion, well, that's conditional on this pandemic, right? Or your right to give money to truckers is conditional on, well, the discretion of others, right? Um, and so that's a right. A privilege, on the other hand, privileges, uh, they're granted. Driving is not a right. Your driver's license, it's a privilege. It's granted by authority. It's revocable. It's conditional, right? You know, privileges are very conditional, subject to all kinds of criteria requirements. They're not inherent, right? They're considered, you know, they're, they're dependent on external factors and things like that. So that's the difference between a right and a privilege. Now, nobody's ever said we have private property privileges in this country. You have property rights. And so let's talk about that very quickly. Ask ChatGPT about this. I think they did okay on this one. Um, property rights refer to the legal rights a person or entity has over a particular resource or asset. These rights give individuals or entities the authority to use, control, and dispose of the property as they see fit within the bounds of the law, okay? So key elements of property rights include exclusive use. You get to decide who's going to use it or not. That's key element. Control. This is the big one. Control is the, the owner has the authority to make all decisions regarding the use and management of the property. Transferability, you can sell it, enjoyment of benefits, we get that, right? Down at the bottom, this is very important. The concept of property rights is foundational to many economic and legal principles, contributing to the functioning of markets and the overall rule of law. So you would think that if somebody was going to fundamentally undermine, change, shift, reclassify private property law and do it in a way that applies to nearly all of the financial wealth held by people in this country, that there would have been a pretty robust, full-throated discussion about that to say, wait a minute, before we potentially monkey with one of the legs of the stool that is foundational to contributing to the functioning of the markets and the overall rule of law, we should talk about this. That did not happen. Nobody had that conversation. They just assumed wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to just separate people from their private property rights when it comes to something that is essential to their overall financial architecture and well-being? Uh, it's crazy, right? You're like, that can't, no, that can't, no, that can't be. So um, this is the question from the European Commission. This is the setup to this whole thing. They said, hey, listen, can you just, we just want clear and concise answers to our questions about all these things here from this is again from the uh, federal reserve document we're going to we're looping back to that one right just in case you didn't get it um this one right so this is a continuation this is the cover page and here we are on the first page of this where they said <laughs> yeah hey uh, if you could give us clear and concise answers too it's fundamentally important in all applicable instances the answers given should specify, please be specific in what ways the answer would differ according to the type of issuer, the intermediary involved, 
or the security? Does it differ? Um, and, uh, and it's to be noted that the bulk of the questionnaire draws no distinction between these collateralized um, uh, security depositories, collateral security depositories, the CSDs, right? And other intermediaries. Okay, we're going to get into that detail, why that's important later. Where helpful, please identify the source law. Like, how are you giving us these answers? And so in the preamble, as it were, before the specific questions come, the New York Federal Reserve said, hey, listen, you know, before answering any specific questions, we're going to set the stage. A few terms, okay? Let's just make sure we're clear on this. Around Article 8's framework. So this is the Uniform Commercial Code, right? Framework for indirectly held securities, okay? One, the securities account is established by agreement between a securities intermediary, that's a broker, and its customer, that might be you, and the securities intermediary, that's a broker, agrees to treat the person, that's you, maintaining the account to which an indirectly held investment is credited is entitled to exercise the rights comprising the investment. The rights. Hmm. Let me challenge that in just a second. Um, skipping down here to do, 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 do four. The securities entitlement is the name given to the property rights and interests of the person holding a financial asset through a securities account. Whoa, 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 whoa. This, do I own it or not? It's more complicated than that. UCC Article 8, we got to go there. The securities entitlement is the name given to the property rights and interests. So they've already redefined it. The security entitlement, that defines what your rights and interests are of the person, you're, you holding the financial asset in a security account. Whoa. And five, an entitlement holder is the person having a security entitlement to a financial asset against its securities intermediary. Oh my God, what? So already you can feel the, the deep, like this is getting crazy. Like it's, how is it this hard? An entitlement holder is the person having having a security entitlement. So there's already layers of like nuance and definitions and it's going to send you to this part of the code, but then that part will send you here and you have all these different things you have to do. And again, if this feels like it's too complicated to understand, that is a feature, not a bug of this particular system. You're supposed to be losing interest by now and going, that's just too complicated. I'm checking out. They're counting on it. This is no different than the gauntlet you have to run here in the United States if you make an insurance claim. They're just going to make it as hard as possible. They're going to deny it because they know that 90% of us will just give up before they get to the prize and get the cheese at the end of the maze. And then they, they pay out according to the 10% who are diligent enough to make it. It's supposed to be this complicated. It doesn't have to be. This should be a really easy question. Hey, who owns my stocks and bonds? You do. There. That I mean, that that's, it should be two words. You do. Okay, so we're starting to get there. Now... This is from Article 8, and this is Section 501, and this is really important. So this begins, um, uh, yeah, this, this begins to get us there where it says, okay, securities account, a securities account, A. Securities account means an account to which a financial asset is or may be credited in accordance with an agreement under which the person maintaining the account undertakes to treat the person for whom the account is maintained is entitled to exercise the rights that comprise the financial asset. This word rights, it does not mean what I think you think it means. B, 
except is otherwise provided in subsections D and E, which we'll get to, which are just down below. A person acquires a security entitlement. A securities entitlement. If a securities intermediary, one, indicates by book entry that a financial asset has been credited to a person's account. Two, it receives a financial asset from the person or acquires a financial asset for the person and in either case accepts it for credit to the person's account, securities account, or three, becomes obligated under law, regulation, or rule to credit a financial asset to a person's securities account. So that's it. If you have a stock or bond, it you now have a securities entitlement if it's held at a securities intermediary, a.k.a. a broker. Okay? Um, so, see uh, if a condition of subsection B has been met, a person has a security entitlement. Even though the securities intermediary does not itself hold the financial asset, you have a securities entitlement. Unless D, this is, we're getting down to the important part here, D, if a securities intermediary holds a financial asset for another person and the financial asset is registered in the name of, payable to the order of, or specifically endorsed to the other person and has not been endorsed to the securities intermediary or in blank, I don't know what that means, or in blank. I've told, I never found out what that meant. If anybody knows, help me out. The other person is treated as holding the financial asset directly rather than as having a security entitlement with respect to the financial asset. That's an important one. Eight dash five oh one D really important. E issuance of a security is not establishment of a security entitlement if that happens. So so there's all right, we're gonna get into D and, and E a little bit later on because it's super important. But so the, this European Commission, they asked the question of the Federal Reserve. They said, hey, where securities are held in pooled form, that is a collective securities position rather than segregated individual pers positions or persons. And by the way, pooled form is how your broker is going to hold it for you. They have to. It's kind of written in the rules. That's what you do. They hold a securities pool. So you think, wow, I own 100 shares of GM. No, you don't. You hold a 100 share security entitlement to a large pool of GM that's being held as a giant pool by your broker. And hopefully they're maintaining the right number of shares in that pool for all the people who think they have 100 shares in there each say, you don't. You don't own any of that pool. You have an entitlement to a pro rata distribution of whatever's in that pool if things go sideways. So the answer to this was, um, does the investor, the question to finish it, does the investor have rights? Do they have rights? Because remember they said before, oh yeah, you know, people have these rights. You know, you have the security entitlement. You have, a, you have all the rights and privileges of being a security entitlement holder. So they asked the question directly to you. They're like, well, does the investor have rights attaching to a particular securities in the pool? No. The security entitlement holder does not have rights attaching to particular securities in the pool. He, she has a pro rata share of the interests in the financial asset held by its securities intermediary to the amount needed to satisfy the aggregate claims of the entitlement holders in that issue. This is true even if investor positions are segregated. Quote time. Oh, did we tell you that we set yours aside? You still have a pro rata distribution of the pool. What? This is so unbelievably convoluted. This should not be this hard. It, you know, it's like my 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 
my mobile bill shouldn't be 15 pages. Like, what is all this stuff in here? Why is this so expensive, right? It shouldn't be true that a small basket of groceries, you know, costs $400 now. It shouldn't be true that, you know, insurance does everything except pay out when it's supposed to. It shouldn't be true that everything's so good. This is just, this is just another part of the overall way in which the culture I live in has been running rackets on its own citizens and treats us like, like we're, we're just, we're just, they're just going to baffle us with BS and they're just going to extract everything they possibly can and then chuck us to the side when they're done. Right. I mean, this is, this is unacceptable. This should be a lot simpler than this, right? Do I own my stocks or not? Again, look at this gobbledygook. <laughs> no, the security entitlement does not have rights attaching to a particular security in the pool. He has a pro rata share of the interest in the financial assets held by security intermediary to the amount needed to satisfy the aggregate claims of the entitlement holders and then blah, 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 blah. This is, this is astonishing, right? I told you, if you stay, if you're, if you're still listening to this, your mind should be blown by this because there it is in plain black and white. And again, if somebody tells you something, your job is to believe them the first time. We don't have to wait for this to be demonstrated 42 ways. And, you know, we don't need 15 more court cases and you don't have to wait until your wealth all goes poof into this gobbledygook to believe it. So that's our job. As hard as it is, our job is to take them at face value and believe what they wrote down and said. Because here's the thing about laws. Laws are very crisp. If you've ever gotten involved in a contract dispute, and unfortunately I have, the words matter. Every word matters. Is there the word not in front of that? Or is there, is you know, every word matters. And so there's two things about laws. One, there's the stuff they write down directly. That's the reality. If it's in there and it's written down, that's, that's it. That's what we're going to follow. That's how law works. If it's written down, you can be absolutely sure that it's been written down for a reason. And that's what the law is going to be. There's another area of law. It's a little grayer, sort of like, you know, they didn't exactly write it down. And then people argue over it. And what did they really mean by this? And there's some interpretation. And then it kind of depends on maybe what a judge thinks or what a jury thinks. That's harder. I'm not talking about any of that stuff today. And through the rest of this series, we're just talking about words that have been written down. So they are what they are. Okay. <clears throat> now, interesting thing. Um, it turns out you're like, well, if I don't own my stocks and bonds, who does, right? <clears throat> this is where it gets interesting. So there's a big clearing corporation called the Depository Trust Clearing Corporation. And that is responsible for all trading. You know, if they say a billion shares traded on the S&P today. Like this is the clearinghouse that that's, that's all these, all these trades are being cleared and settled. Okay. And they have a subsidiary, which is an LLC wholly owned by DTCC. I can't find out who's on the board of this company, but at any rate, a seed and company is an LLC owned by the DTCC as another layer of legal sort of protection and seed and company is just a company. It's like any company. It's got a balance sheet. It's got income. It's got expenses, it's got liabilities, all that it's company. Quote, Seed and Company is a specialist United States financial institution that processes transfers of stock certificates on behalf of the DTC, the central securities depository used by the United States national market system. So far, so good. Which includes the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Seed and Company is shorthand for the phrase certificate depository. Appropriately, however, even, even Wiki had to point this out. It's like, you can't avoid this. The word seed... C-E-D-E means to give up power or territory. I will cede control. I cede the throne. 
Isn't that funny? Get it? <laughs> they named their company Seed and Company because you gave up all your share rights and ownership structure to them, right? Um, because investors give up their stock and companies, give up their shareholders to an intermediary. It's been seeded. Seed technically owns most of the publicly issued stock in the United States, and technical is the best kind of ownership when it comes to legal stuff. Know what I mean? Thus, most investors do not themselves hold direct property rights in stock, but rather have contractual rights that are part of a chain of contractual rights involving seed. You say chain of contractual rights, and I'm thinking, you know what they say. If you've been at the table for more than 30 minutes, you don't know who the sucker is. A chain of contractual rights. Well, what is this chain? Wait, which contractual rights? Who? What? <laughs> Securities held at, at DTC are registered in its nominee name, which is Seed & Company, recorded on its books in the name of the brokerage firm through which they are purchased. Getting the complexity again. Seed owns 83% of all issued stocks in the United States. The other 17% of all issued stocks is owned by directly registered holders through the direct registration system, which you probably heard about if you heard about the whole GameStop the GME, that's its ticker symbol. If you heard about the whole GameStop drama and there's a movie about that, you can look up, which is really good to, to follow through. The movie's good as far as it goes, but it didn't quite unravel this spaghetti far enough, but it's still, you, you can get the idea. Um, you know, plucky retail investors decided to try and take this, this Goliathon and uh, sort of were successful, but mostly got crushed. Um, that's how it is. Okay. So here's what we've covered so far in this story. We've covered part one, which is that you are not the owner of your stocks and bonds. In fact, you have what's called a security entitlement. Um, and uh, you are, because of that, you are a subordinated claimant because you hold the security entitlement. You are in a chain of custody, okay? And um, you are not the senior claimant. So in the next episode, we're going to be unraveling what happens in these next stages here. So what are secured creditors? Who are these institutions? Why did this get set up? What are derivative contracts? How, how can you make sense of it? And all of this is far larger than the value of everything, all that. We're going to be covering all of that in the subsequent ones. For now, I think your head is probably full. I invite you to chase down any of these particular things that I've showed you. And I got tons of stuff, you know, beyond this. And all of this is going to be in the show notes. And we'll have all of this contained back at Peak Prosperity as a very special offering because people need to know this. And if you know me, we'll be talking about great taking part two um, back at Peak Prosperity. There is a part two to this, which is going to be really good. If you know me, I don't just tell you this stuff and I don't, you know, I spend a lot of time figuring it out so I can hopefully communicate it reasonably well. But I'm also the guy who wants to help understand well, what do we do about that? And just articulating this is one thing, but what do we do about it? There are things that can be done and there are ways that we all can protect ourselves and if you care about that at all, then you're going to want to come and become a subscriber at Peak Prosperity because that's where we do these sorts of things. And by the way, there's a lot of reasons why I keep these things behind a paywall beyond wanting to have a team and a staff and, a, and an ongoing business. It's, um, it's really important to keep some of this stuff out of prying eyes. So with that, thank you very much for listening. I hope you got as much out of this as, as I did. And uh, if I've fumbled any of this stuff, it's because... Whew, it's pretty complicated. Thanks. We'll see you next time for episode two of this series. Bye-bye. <laughs>